Hello, everyone. It is so good to be here. It's been such um, a joy already uh, being part of this conference. Um, and uh, I'm just pleased to be here at Mockingbird Midwest. As David said, I live in England. I don't get to as many Mockingbird conferences as I used to, although I think I've still been to like 10, which is pretty good uh, over the years. I wonder if anyone has me beat besides Dave. And it has been truly amazing to see how Mockingbird has uh, grown and developed and done so much good for so many people uh, over these 16 years. Um, and it, I have to say I was deeply moved when I walked in last night to uh, just thinking about how God has blessed this ministry and my brother Dave's faithfulness uh, over so many years. I always wonder how he's going to introduce me, and it's, it's usually variations on the same theme. Anyway... Today, I'm in an optimistic mood. Is that an unusual thing in 2023? I think maybe it is. What I'm optimistic about, believe it or not, stay with me, is the future of Christianity. The prospects for this religion that, as Dave said last night, has just one true treasure to offer the world, which is the grace of God. I've not always felt this optimistic. In the last 25 or years or so that I've been old enough to reflect as a Christian on the world we live in, the story has not always been an inspiring one. My adult life has taken place in a period of numerical decline in church-going, at least in the Western world. I've seen a lot of those depressing slides like Dave showed us last night. It's also been a period where the world seems to have become less and less interested in matters of the spirit and in matters of the soul. I was talking to someone yesterday who, who trains nurses, and they were talking about how, how, how many pressures there are to sort of reduce what nursing is to things that you can measure on a spreadsheet, when in fact it's something that so much of it has to do with this pastoral human dimension that's very, very hard to quantify. And I related to that. Uh, we have the same thing in humanities academia. Uh, what is it? Yeah, can you count this, you know, the value of Shakespeare? Um, can you count the value of thinking through deep philosophical questions? It's, it's hard, but there's a pressure, there's a thinning pressure uh, in, in the world um, that makes it hard to talk about matters of the spirit. So why on earth would I be optimistic about Christianity's prospects? Today I want to tell you why. The reason, to put it simply, is that with every year that goes by, the more clear it seems to me that Christianity offers a vision of reality a vision of our lives that is so much more profound than anything else uh, that is being offered to us. It offers a vision of life as genuinely having a purpose, a purpose so simple that anyone can understand it, and yet a purpose so deep that you can spend your whole life studying it and never get to the bottom. It offers a lens on the world that is deeply realistic. There's no false optimism about human goodness, no sort of facile lies that we tell ourselves about things just getting better all the time. And yet in this realism and honesty, it also offers grounds for deep and abiding hope. Contrast this with our cultural moment here in the Western world. Uh, do you know what the lead headline in the Wall Street Journal is this very morning, or was a few hours ago? It's this, how polarization sent Washington hurtling into a shutdown. That was the lead uh, article. We hear this word, polarization, a lot. What I think it captures is a sense that the contemporary, well, political landscape sort of obviously, but really also contemporary 
cultural life in general has basically become a battleground, an arena of war. The default lens for understanding the world around us that we are so often given right now is one of antagonism. Us versus them, the good guys versus the bad guys. I have a feeling you know what I'm talking about. I think we see this vision of cult, this cultural vision of antagonism and polarization in our cultural mythologies as well, the stories that we're drawn to. So not so long ago, uh, the story that captured most of it, captured us the most was the lovely and subtle and hopeful world of Harry Potter. Remember Harry Potter? In that universe, uh, most of us will recall, the worst bad guy, Voldemort, was originally a normal person whose soul was slowly twisted. First by personal suffering, his mother died and his father then abandoned him, and then by the pursuit of power. In one of the climactic moments of the series, uh, at the end of book five, Harry gets the upper hand against Voldemort at a key moment, not by beating him with magic, but by having pity on him. By seeing him as a sad and suffering soul, in a sense, by loving him. A sad and suffering soul rather than evil incarnate. So that, at least at its best, was the moral vision of Harry Potter. The worst villain is someone who, for all his crimes, is also a broken human soul to be pitied. Contrast this vision of good and evil with uh, what I think is suddenly not anymore, but until very recently was the reigning cultural mythology, certainly in the 2010s, namely the universe of, of the Marvel movies and superheroes. The Marvel universe, you know, I've seen every single one of the movies, so I'm not, you know, I'm knocking it in that sort of way. Uh, the Marvel Universe is fundamentally a, a Nietzschean world, a world where the way you win is by being stronger than the other guys, than the bad guys. The bad guys are almost always cartoon villains who deserve nothing but destruction. The climaxes in the movies tend to involve tedious waves of nameless enemies being destroyed by godlike heroes. And the emotional catharsis usually comes when at the end last moment of some battle, the heroes are about to lose, and then suddenly they they find a way to change the power differential, to get more power than the bad guys after all, and then they defeat them. The Hulk is unleashed, or Captain Marvel comes uh, from across the galaxy to save the day, or Superman comes back from the dead. It's appealing. It speaks to something that we find appealing. But these are, I think, the, the mythologies of a polarized culture, antagonistic culture, a culture of anger and cartoon visions of morality. Visions in which me and my friends are right and good and true, and those we disagree with are evil and wrong and need to be removed from the picture. There's a word in theology for this kind of vision of reality. Some of you may know it. That word is Manichaeism. I have two theological words for you. I like to give a couple of theological words uh, in these kind of contexts. So my first theological word for you this afternoon is Manichaeism. Manichaeism was an ancient religion that was dualistic. In other words, its vision of the cosmos was of a vast battle between a good god and an equally powerful evil god. In the Manichaean vision of reality, you're always in a war and your enemy deserves only destruction. The way that you deal with something that is pure evil is by destroying it. That's the natural thing to do with something that is irredeemably evil. Ah, slides, yes. Okay. So what does all this have to do with my optimism about the future of Christianity? <laughs> well, it's this. 
I'm more convinced than I ever have been that Christianity offers a far, far deeper and more profound vision of reality than anything else that is currently on offer. The vision of polarization I've just been talking about, the vision of scorched earth, uh, war, and cheering in the movie when the hero just crushes the villain like a rag doll, that's a, a Marvel movie vision of reality. It's not a Christian one. In comparison to the Christian one, it's ultimately, I think, an adolescent vision of reality. The Christian vision is characterized by compassion, by realism, by a thick sense of meaning, and by its ability to foster deep and workable hope in spite of everything. I think this also explains why the recent Marvel movies have been terrible, uh, <laughs> without exception. Um, once you've watched the Hulk defeat Loki three or four times, or whatever the equivalent is, the Manichaean vision of reality has nothing left to say. It's fundamentally unprofound. It's increasingly culturally bankrupt. So today I want to go a little deeper into this Christian vision of reality that I've been referring to. I want to talk about what you might call the deep logic of the Christian faith. We talk a lot as Christians about God's grace, about the fact that God loves us in spite of our sin and our brokenness, and we all know that the heart of Christian ethics is Jesus' commandment to love our enemies. What I want to do this afternoon is show why these aren't just nice ideas that Christians dreamed up. It wasn't just that Jesus sort of had a nice idea, hey, what if we loved our enemies? Rather, I want to show how these powerful ideas emerge out of a whole vision of things, a whole vision of where the world comes from and what it's for and a vision of what God is like. The version of this vision I'm going to present to you is specifically the version articulated by St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the late 4th and early 5th centuries in North Africa. He's probably the greatest theologian who ever lived, at least who didn't write a book of the Bible. Uh, he's also, more specifically, arguably, the greatest theologian of grace, though in this context I must say Luther also was okay. <laughs> anyway, I think Augustine would have liked Mockingbird. Augustine's way of explaining the Christian vision of reality also is useful for our purposes because it, he developed it in contrast with, you guessed it, Manichaeism, like actual Manichaeism. He was an actual Manichae. Uh, he was a participant in the religion. He wasn't just a symbolic Manichae like all of us. Um, I should also say that the core ideas I'm going to be talking about, although I'm going to use Augustine, they, they aren't just Augustine's ideas. They were widely shared by uh, pretty much all of the main um, theologians who wrote about these things in the early church. Uh, it's really what I'm going to talk about is just what Christians believe, at least formally, at least in theory. So bear with me now while we do a little theology. Enter my, my Cambridge classroom or whatever it is, just for, just for a few minutes. We're going to do some, some theology. What I want to do is show you what you might, we might call the theological scaffolding of the, the deep theological structure that stands underneath the fact that the Christian God is a God of grace. God who loves and forgives sinners, and a God who, as the Bible tells us, came not to judge the world, but to save it. Okay. First idea, first piece of the scaffolding is this. Everything in the universe was made by God. There is nothing that exists that did not receive its being and its existence from God. This is how Augustine puts it in his great book, The City of God. There is only one source of all things, and no nature can exist unless it comes from that source. 
This theological idea is uh, traditionally known as the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. It was developed in contrast to other ancient ideas that said that God made the world out of stuff that already existed. So God wasn't behind everything, but he made order out of this stuff that already existed. And the Christian vision says, no, nothing existed before or without God. Everything has its being from God. There's a key implication that follows from the fact that God made everything. This is the second piece of the scaffolding. This is the fact that creation is good. Remember Genesis, over and over in the creation story, God makes something and then says, it's good. But why is it good? Is it just good because God says so? Not really. The reason creation is good, the reason the sun and the stars are good, the reason that trees and flowers are good, the reason giraffes and dolphins and insects on the ground are good, the reason sunsets are good and oceans are good, and the reason that you and I, despite all appearances, at the deepest substrate of our existence are good, these things are all good because they are made by God. You see, God is good. God is the source of all goodness. The goodness of the sunsets and the oceans and the stars and the giraffes. The goodness of your children and your friends. The goodness of a little league game in the 1980s or of the, uh, the saints uh, we were figuring about last night. The goodness of Michelangelo and Shakespeare or of the extraordinary work of awe-inspiring complexity that's going on in each cell of your body right now, enabling you to be alive and functioning and listening to all this. All this goodness is a refraction of the goodness of God. That is the Christian view. These things are good because God is good, and that means everything he makes is good. Here's Augustine again. He says, there is no immutable good apart from the one true blessed God. And the things which he made are indeed good because they come from him. Very simple, very profound logic. Do you see that already we are in a different world than the world of Manichaeism? If God's goodness is in all things, maybe not always so visible on the surface sometimes, but in the deep structure of the being of things, that affects how we interact with the rest of God's creation. Creation belongs to God and is from God, and creation is good, and there are no exceptions to these facts, because nothing that exists was created by anything other than God. Okay, we're partway through the theology bit. Second point, what about bad things? Bad things are good things gone wrong. There's a lot of evil and suffering and sin in the world. There are a lot of people who do terrible things to each other and to the rest of God's creation. There's a deep gone wrongness in our natures that the theologians speak about. It's a gone wrongness that we can't escape on our own powers. But in the Christian vision of reality, the, what we, the, how we think about these things, what we make of these things that are wrong, that are evil, that have gone wrong, is that they are bad things gone wrong, bad things that have gotten twisted or disoriented. Voldemort is a great example. He began as a good creature uh, with a soul. The very fact that he can do all the stuff with the horcruxes is that he has a soul from which bits can be taken. Oh, yeah, there we go. From which bits can be taken. He is a bad thing that's gotten twisted, a good thing that's gotten twisted. 
Augustine says it again. Evil things, it's a very remarkable statement, listen to this, evil things cannot exist without the good, for the natures in which evil exists are certainly good insofar as they are natures. They're created by God. So there's a funny thing, a funny implication that I think is theologically true, even though it sounds a little strange. If you were truly evil at the core of your being, you couldn't be a sinner. You'd just be evil. To be a sinner, you have to be a good creature of God. A creature that has gone wrong. Which also means a creature that can be put right. Again, do you see how this changes our outlook on reality? How it means we can't be content with an adolescent morality, with superhero morality. In the Manichaean vision, the world is a battleground. A pure, unstinting malevolence should be destroyed. It'd be better if it didn't exist. As I said, scorched earth. You see the, uh, this is, I mean, it's Jesus versus the devil. That's a question we'll get to in a second. But um, this, is a, this is a vision of a Manichaean uh, picture of things. The truth is, there is no contest, ultimately, metaphysically. Um, that's, the, that's the truth. In the Augustinian vision, though, every villain, every person who has, been, who has mistreated you, done wrong to people you care about, is also a person in possession of a soul created by God. Every person, no matter how far gone, is infinitely valuable to God. We know this, but we forget it. This is a vision not of evil, but of a fall from grace. And at one level, it's worth saying the Christian vision is a kind of tragic vision. It's much more tragic for evil to be made of fallen good than for it to be made of pure, unstinting malevolence. St. Augustine lived in a Manichaean world, both culturally in the kind of Nietzschean world of classical Roman civilization, but also actually, like he said, he was an actual Manichaean. And his conversion to Christianity wasn't part of conversion away from Manichaeism. You can read about this in his Confessions. A big part of his conversion was the realization that everything God made is good, and that bad things are therefore not evil in themselves. They are twisted goods. Okay, so what does this mean more concretely? Am I still on the mic? Yes? Okay, good. Uh, what does this mean more concretely? One thing it means is that uh, how do good things go wrong if they are not evil by nature? Well, we were made to love God. God is love, and he made us to love. That's, that's the deepest truth of things. We are made to love uh, as God's creatures. He created us out of love, and we're meant to love him, and through him to love his creation. So in this vision, when you love your child, and you see their infinite goodness, you are also at the same time seeing God. You are loving God because he is the source of all that is good and precious about your child. We were made to love God, including by loving his creation. But because of evil and the fall, uh, because of the fall into sin, the Christian story tells us our loves have become disordered. Sin is not evil. It is disordered love. That's the fourth piece of the scaffolding in the Christian vision of reality. Sin is disordered love. Here's Augustine again. This is a, another remarkable statement, if you can follow it. He says this, The one who lives a just and holy life, as in the holy person, is the one who loves things 
in the right order so that they do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved. They don't have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for the things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. The righteous person is the person who loves things in the right order. Scrooge McDuck loved things in the wrong order. He came to love money. The story of the Christmas Carol is the story of seeing how his soul got twisted away from love of, I forget her name, but she's Daisy, uh, you know, the duck, in the, in, in the duck, the duck version, um, and, uh, and towards money. He starts taking a thing that is a little good and becomes his god. It becomes an idol. It becomes the, his greatest good. It becomes everything to him, more than other people, more than God. So that's what idolatry is, loving a good thing too much, as if it were God. Malproportioned love. A parent who's overly attached to their kid, whose whole world revolves around this, you know, maybe there's something going on with uh, these, uh, what Dave was telling you, these cultural, these overachieving sort of dynamics that um, we get so attached to, uh, our own identity gets so attached in our children that we're, instead of loving them the right way, we're loving them too much. Uh, we're not, because they're not, it's not in the right order. And that's your task in life and in mine, to love things, but in the right order. To love God's incredible world and the amazing people in it, but to do it for God's sake, knowing that their source is in God, a God who is good, a God who is love itself. Okay, that's the core of the theology lesson. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> for those of you who get excited about such things, uh, rather than put off by them, if you get put off by them, just ignore what I'm about to say. But uh, let me just give you another name for what we've just been talking about. What we've been talking about is Christian metaphysics. I've just given you a crash course in the metaphysics of creation, as understood by Augustine. Metaphysics is your second theological term. For these purposes, it just is a fancy word for vision of reality. So what's the upshot? First, and above all, this scaffolding, this metaphysics, it tells us something about God and his attitude towards us. It explains why, when God looks at us in our sin, in our evil, in the destruction that we wreak upon each other and upon the world, he doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want to win against our evil like they do in the superhero movies. To God, we can never finally be his enemies. We are his beloved creatures. He made us and he is good. He doesn't want us to be destroyed no matter what. What he wants instead is to fix us, to heal us, to redeem us, to bring order out of our disorder. Not just to stop us from doing more harm, but to undo even the harm that we have done. That's what redemption means. And it's why the Christian vision of reality is a redemptive one. Instead of casting us into the outer darkness for our crimes, God comes to us in Jesus preaching forgiveness. This makes metaphysical sense. And it's the deep logic behind that beautiful verse in John. I'm not making this up. God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. The doctrine of creation shows us why this is the case, 
why God's love for us and his desire to save us is not arbitrary. It's not just a thing he decided to do. Understanding all this about God and the nature of creation and evil shows us the deep coherence of the Christian vision of reality. And it shows us why God doesn't give up on us, like, uh, like the coach last night. It's because disordered love can be made ordered again. Its foundation is good. So back to Scrooge. Scrooge can be redeemed. He can start using his money rightly again to love others. He brings food to Bob Cratchit's starving family, medicine for Tiny Tim. Money is suddenly in its right place. It's ordered to love. And he is redeemed. This is why, under all the pressures of this world, God really, really, really is not waiting for us all to manage well and figure it out, sink or swim. It's why when things, go, don't, when things go wrong, he doesn't start over. Instead, he sends a savior. He came to fix things personally. I wonder if any of you know this painting, one of my favorite paintings. It's called The Lifeline by Winslow Homer, an American painter in the second half of the 19th century. The background of it is it's something that uh, Homer, he, he did a lot of paintings of sort of um, communities that live by the sea. Uh, and he witnessed a shipwreck just off the coast during a storm. And there was this thing they had uh, that would have been in maritime communities in those days. There were these rescuers who, who would be ready to go out and save people who were, who were having trouble during a storm. And they had this kind of winch pulley system called a lifeline. You can see the middle of it here. I don't exactly know what it was attached to on either side, but it was used to get people safely out of the water in a context of great um, a lot, you know, waves and, and chaos. So that's, in principle, what this is. But it's also an image of salvation that is as pure as any I know. Look how little she does. Look how safe she is in the arms of her anonymous rescuer. I think it's very hard not to see the red sort of scarf in front of the face as an atonement reference, a reference to God, to the blood of Christ. I like to use this with students to say, you know, we, we talk a lot about in theology about uh, mechanisms of atonement, different uh, courtroom theories of atonement, uh, different kinds of styles of thinking about how the mechanics of how the cross works. And here we see the mechanics of the lifeline. It's an actual pulley system and so on. But that's not really ultimately what the most interesting thing. The point of the mechanics is rescue of a person. Uh, so I think that's, that's a neat way to think about it. But this is not just a picture of what God is doing for you and me. It's a picture of God's relationship to the whole of creation. God is love and in the end, it's not just a principle or idea. He sees the world like this woman who is unconscious in the water. He reaches out in compassion to rescue and to save. Second upshot. Let's go back to Augustine one last time. Augustine states all this with the simple and clear logic that only genius and inspiration and a lifetime of deepest reflection on God and the human condition can produce. It sounds so dry, but it's so deep. He says this, an evil is eradicated 
not by the removal of the nature in which it has arisen, but by the healing and correction of the nature which has become vitiated and depraved. That is the Christian redemptive vision of reality. You deal with wrongness by saving it, fixing it, redeeming it. Do any of you know the poem Little Gidding by T.S. Eliot? I spent a lot of the first half of my sabbatical last year uh, basically just sitting around reading T.S. Eliot uh, and reading lots of essays about T.S. Eliot and generally becoming uh, nerding out about T.S. Eliot for various reasons. Anyway, in one of the four quartets, the last of the four quartets, uh, one of the great works of Christian poetry of all time, it's called Little Gidding, uh, and it's based on a, a little village and a chapel that's not far from where I live in Cambridge, England, and I went recently. At a key point in the poem, Eliot captures Augustine's vision, which is really just the Christian vision. He says, the whole earth is our hospital. What he's saying is that after the coming of God into the world 2,000 years ago, the world's nature has changed. The whole world, the whole pilgrimage of our lives through the world God has created is now really a vast theater of redemption, a vast garden for our convalescence, a divine operating room. What it isn't is a battleground. So that's the second upshot. The world is not a field of war. It is a hospital. I want to quickly address three three things you might be thinking in, in, in relation to this. Three pushbacks, I guess. First, well, okay, the world is a hospital. The Christian vision is of redemption, but aren't we ever supposed to fight? Sometimes you have to fight, armor of God, and so on. Those images are there. But I would say that the fighting is always in service of healing, not destroying. And we never wish for human enemies to be destroyed. That follows theologically from what we've been saying. Second question, what about the devil? Of course, the devil is a fallen angel. His ultimate fate is between him and God, but remember, the way he gets through to us is through our loves. He delights in disordered love. He preys on love. Deceives. The third caveat is to say that the work of redeeming the world and restoring order to what is disordered is ultimately the work of God. We are certainly called to take part in this work, but the fact that God wills the redemption of our enemies doesn't mean that you should stay in an abusive relationship or see, your, see mistreatment as some kind of Christian duty, necessarily. God is the one who is doing this. Though, that extraordinary movie we saw earlier uh, was also a witness to the reality of what I'm describing. So to return to the deep logic here, we can understand why the great ethical statement of Jesus about loving enemies is not just a lovely one-off statement. It's a claim that is in line with the grain of the universe. The full statement is this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What I hope I've shown is that there is a vast structure, a vast vision of reality that stands behind that simple, astonishing, straightforward, ethical commandment. I'm not going to tell you exactly what this looks like for you in your context today, what it looks like to see the world as a hospital rather than a battleground. I think we do need to ask ourselves the question, are we looking at the world, at least in some domains, through Manichaean eyes, 
eyes of righteous anger. Righteous anger is a pretty good indicator of a Manichaean uh, outlook. I do think we have a witness as Christians and a calling as Christians to a different vision of reality than the vision of anger and scorched earth and us versus them. Vocation, to look at the world, to sort of dare to look at the world and the people in it as the infinitely precious refraction of God's own goodness. To pity our enemies like Harry did, indeed to love them rather than to wish them out of existence. So this is why I'm optimistic. Does that make sense? Let me tell you why. The Christian vision of reality is just so incredibly compelling, so thick, so charged with meaning, so full, so coherent and profound in comparison to everything else around. It helps freeze us to look at the ugliness of the world and of ourselves with honest eyes, like Katie was talking about this morning. It's, uh, it's a world that allows for, um, for deep, realistic hope, uh, and that sees people as God, things, uh, objects of God's eternal love. Uh, it's hard work in some ways to see the world this way, but it's so much more interesting. I want to end with one more painting. This painting is by Stanley Spencer, British 20th century artist. It's called Travois Arriving, Arriving with Wounded at a Dressing Station. The uh, Painting is, uh, comes from a memory that he had during World War I. Of, uh, so this is a field hospital, basically, near the trenches in World War I. People are, the wounded are being brought to this sort of shed uh, and uh, where surgery is being done. They're coming there to be healed from the war that they are, have been a part of. But what you may be able to tell is that the model here is of the stable in Bethlehem. He's turned uh, with a baby in the middle, with the animals around, all looking in, but the baby in the middle has been turned into a surgeon. A hospital has been built in the middle of a battleground, and at the center of it is the great surgeon of souls. We are, and it, it, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's, they're actually operating on someone right there uh, in the middle, someone who is presumably severely uh, on the brink of death. I think in this image we are the wounded on those uh, sort of the, the travois as they're called, the kind of stretchers. Maybe we're also the people bringing the wounded to, to the surgeon. I love this surgeon image. The surgeon working on the patient whose wound is dire, who is on the brink of death. Death is when a good thing ceases to exist. That's why God opposes death. What I've been saying today, one thing it means is that God so values you and me that he would not even let death itself keep him from loving you. He is so committed to the value of your existence and my existence and the existence of our neighbors and the existence of our enemies that when our heartbeat flatlines, still he will not give up. I was looking at the painting this morning, and I had almost a vision that this person, of this person on the table there, you, you can barely see, but as, as dying, and there was almost this sort of vortex of blackness appearing and growing as death was trying to suck them into nothingness, into non-existence. And then the surgeon 
doesn't let them go, reaches all the way down into the void to bring them back. That is the sort of surgeon we are talking about. Even non-existence cannot separate us from the love of God. When God is involved, even the very end of the story is not the end of the story. When the credits roll on your life and the movie is over, and you're gone into that void, the one who created all things from nothing will lodge a protest. He will say, no, the story is not over, and he will reach into the void and pull you back out of the very black, just as he did in the beginning when he created the world from nothing out of infinite love. Thank you.